Does anyone else think it sounds like Liel singing News of the Jews, by the way? I, I didn't, but now I will. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am one of your hosts, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by a couple others. Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Great to be here. And Tablet Editor-at-Large Liel Leibowitz. Chag Purim, Chag Purim, Chag Yehudim. Is it actually Purim? I like don't even know when Purim is, to be Stephanie honest. Budnick, it is so Purim. And we have <laughs> a double stuffed, a mishloach manot, a shlachmonis, if you will, of Purim goodness. Guys, are you ready for me to tell you what we have in, in your mishloach yeah. manot? Let's do it. Let's open that basket. So first of all, we have an essay from my dear friend, Rabbi David Bashevkin who noted that the beloved comedian, Gary Shandling, passed away on Purim. And most normal people would stop right there and say, oh, that's interesting, you know, a famously Jewish comedian passing away on Purim. But David called Judd Apatow and then got in touch with Gary Shandling's cousin and gave us a truly amazing essay about why Gary Shandling is the embodiment of Purim, why he's Mr. Purim, why he's the spirit of Purim and why it matters. That's a lot of fun. And so to bring us all down as we should, I have an essay too about the parts of the Megillah that you don't usually hear about. Remember the part, Stephanie, where uh, the Jews killed 75,000 of their enemies? Is that what the Groggers were for? That is not what the Groggers <laughs> are for. That is what the swords were for. And I sort of grapple with the fact that this is a hella violent, murderous holiday. And why I think... That's actually, surprise, surprise, a great thing. Yeah. If that isn't enough. Finally, I think the other very important message of Purim is that Purim is about all of us being together. It's about all of us having stood to perish together and all of us having been saved together by rare for Jews working together. So we are thrilled in this spirit of all of us being together to bring a report from our West Coast correspondent, Courtney Hazlett, from Shemesh Farm out in Malibu, which is a farm that caters to people with different abilities, uh, which is also our way of celebrating Jewish Disability and Inclusion Month, which is February. And let's face it, today is kind of February 30th. We know what it is. Stephanie, you look so excited right now. I have a block on Purim for some reason. It's just so not there for me, like in my consciousness, in my Jewish life. I don't know why. Okay, call me crazy, but I'm sensing some tension in the room right now. Yes. I'm sensing that we have very, by which I mean radically, by which I mean we probably have more divergent, different, radically different opinions about Purim than we do probably about anything else, Jewishly. So, okay, here's the thing. I think Purim is like a bellwether. Is that the right phrase? It's like a barometer. Basically, how you feel about Purim tells a lot about like where you exist on the spectrum of both like Jewish engagement and Jewish religiosity. For me, Purim hasn't been a thing since I was like a kid when you like dressed up at like a pageant at Hebrew school. But I know that for people, Purim, like I don't think I've ever been to a Purim spiel. I've but been I know... tailgating for a week. I know, like, but people As are soon really as Adar enters, I start but drinking why is even that? more. Wait a it's, second. It's a kid's thing. So I want to be clear on what you're claiming. You're claiming that for most American Jews, Purim ends after the Hebrew school Purim parade or Purim spiel when you're seven. But for religious Jews, Not it's even a, religious. I just want to know what your claim is because I, I have a different. I guess I guess my thing is Purim is one of those weird holidays that kind of falls by the wayside if you're not part of a community for whom that is a central part, right? right. Either your community is you're a child or you have children or you're in a world with children or you love the idea of like the Megillah reading. That's something important to you or the Purim spiel is important to you. I mean, there have been sort of like cultural renderings of the Purim spiel that take it out of like a primary like religious context. But I think you have to be very, very engaged with a specific Jewish community for Purim to be very meaningful to you. 
And I believe that it's important to, like, I think it's great. It just has no resonance for me because I'm not part of one of those things. Except you are now. You're going to Tat Shabbat all the time. You don't I think know, there's going to be some. Me. You don't think there's going to be some forum action at Tat Shabbat? That's okay. true. I agree with you about seventy five percent. I have a slightly different. Okay. I too have strong feelings. Because I Liel think Forum right. has a branding problem. Yeah. Liel is. Li- Liel is right that there's strong feelings in this room. The triangle of this circular table <laughs> has a lot of different feels. There's the eye at the center. Is about that the Purim. Yeah, exactly. By the way, that should have been our new logo. <laughs> the eye at the center of the triangle. I'm like, I'm the Illuminati. The pyramid with the yeah. dollar sign. And yeah. So, right. Growing up in a family that wasn't a member of a synagogue and not going to Hebrew school, there was no Purim. I think I got to college knowing what it was, but I didn't really know what it was. You're right. If you're not attaching to a community that's doing the McGillah reading or a Purim play or a carnival or something, you're not you're not doing it in the home the way you do Passover yeah. Hanukkah. Yes, Totally yes. with you there. I want to, yes, and you, I want to take it a step further in terms of my own, you know, Purim misgivings, neurosis, sorus, and say that I've never seen people really having a good time at Purim. <laughs> like the Purim spiels, I've never seen people really paying attention and laughing. <laughs> it's often there's a performance, but people are actually talking or God. drinking oh my or God, whatever. Wait. This is amazing. I love that point. Right? I also feel like you're going to say you never see people that drunk That's, either. <laughs> yeah, so we know each other too well. Also, there's this mythology that we're all like 20 drinks in and we can't even recognize Heyman's name. It's always at four in the afternoon, and there's one guy who does his third shot. He's like, Whoa, Whoa. Where have you, so where have you been hanging it's, your no, entire life? It's sort of like when we like when people talk about drugs and you're like, Oh, this doesn't sound cool at all. Like when people are like, This is the, the holiday <laughs> where we drink, we go wild, and everyone's like, Okay, like if you talk about it so much, it's like you're protesting too much. Before, <laughs> totally. Right, 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 Ooh. right. Whereas the real the real druggies, they don't talk about it. The people who are telling totally, you how amazing yeah. it is, you're kind of like, is it? But before Liel puts us in our place. No, that's, that's the way I feel about Purim. Before, I can't talk to you about Purim. Before like, Liel, the first rule of Purim. Puts that's a, right. <laughs> before Liel puts us in our place, I want to say one more thing even. Interestingly, the holiday where I think I feel the Purim spirit, like I actually see people drinking and dancing, is Simchat Torah. Where if you go to a Simchat Torah thing, people who are a little bit resistant and don't really want to dance, someone hands them a Torah and they all of a sudden start kicking up their heels. And it's really actually kind of fun because there's- joyful, festive. Yeah, it's actually joyful. And people feel like, wait, we are parading around with our people's book. It has a little bit more, not that the Megillah is not content, but it's it feels a little bit more passive at Purim where you're sort of receiving this thing you're supposed to do. So I don't know, Liel, do you love, have- love Simchas Torah, not here to, you know, <laughs> belabor it at all. But you know what Simchas Torah is to Purim? Simchas Torah is to Purim what a guided meditation app is to, let's say, transcendental meditation, to, to use a supremely kind of, you know, basic uh, terminology. Sure, it's very easy to come to a show and everyone says like, now, dance with the Torah. Do this X number of times and we will give you ice cream. Purim is like, listen, everyone, uh, here's what we want you to do. We want you to give each other uh, little packets of candy. We want you to give some money to the poor. We want you to hear this Megillah twice. And in the middle of the day, we want you to arrange an actual feast. What's in the feast? That's on you, man. And and let me tell you, where I uh, spend my time, the feasts are super real. Like, you're absolutely right about the real druggies not talking about them. But like the meat and alcohol and joy and actual engagement in Torah in a way that isn't you know, uh, we're here because we have to do this religious thing, but really, like, we're here because there's nothing else we would rather be doing. It's to me, fantastic. there's too many things. Like, Purim is too small a holiday Four to have. things is too many things. It's like, okay, you, you, because here's the thing. People know one thing or two <laughs> things about a holiday. Who they know one? the drinking, the dress up, but then there's the Megillah reading, then there's the Mishloch Minot, which are the baskets you prepare for neighbors, and then there's the thing that I don't even think I knew, which is, like, giving charity, right? What is what is that one called? Matanot Levyoni. 
And it's like, that's fourth. That should be one. Yeah. And then there's like, more, someone right? Well, I don't even know. What's the feast? Right. Someone call Mackenzie consultants. Yeah. This is too many I'm mitzvahs totally, for one holiday. I'm totally with Sputnik here. But I do I do want to do take backsies for a moment. I somehow forgot, of course, the Mishlach Manot. Shlach Manus, Shlach as it was said. Shlach Manus. Is that like Rachmanus? It is like Rachmanus. My mother, <laughs> my mother knew what Shlach Manus was, and she was telling me, oh, poor him. Oh, you're making, how much Sid's making hamantash? Of course, for the Shlach Manus. I was like, <laughs> oh, right. I've been in this day school world with my kids where it's Mishloach Manot. It was Shlach Manus. <laughs> But there is something very beautiful, and it's weird that I separated it in my mind about the making of the hamantaschen and then making the little baskets. And we get in the minivan and we deliver them around their neighborhood. We make a list of you know who. who oh yeah, would... I always you always talk about that. And you that do is love Purim. I do love that aspect of it. It's really that I always feel I'm not having as much fun as I should at a Purim spiel or party. I'm not drinking the way I should because it's four in the afternoon <laughs> and I have stuff. Yeah, to no do. one should be feeling less than like there's it makes too me many feel things. Than. There's too many things that you need to do for this holiday to feel good about it. <laughs> <laughs> and in I, one day. In one day. On like Passover where there's a lot of stuff to you have a week. And a costume. The essence, the essence <laughs> is drinking a lot and celebrating the essential, as we will hear later, uh, slaughter by the Jews of 75,000 of their enemies. What's not to love? And, and here's how much I love Purim. I love Purim despite the fact that I survived, if I may use the term. Uh, probably one of the worst experiences that, that anyone could ever have on Purim, which is my... Junior year of high school, my friend Vicky and I, this is back in Herzliya. Vicky, you know decided, Vicky? Uh, Vicky. Vicky. Yeah. Vicky? Vicky and I decided to dress up as Bart and Homer Simpson. Oh, because in um, Israel, you don't just dress. And in some here, sometimes oh here Lord. too. You don't in just Israel, dress as the, the like, correct. Esther, Haman, this is, Mordecai. This is their Halloween. Halloween. Okay, it's Halloween. For, for us. But, you know, school's out for the day. You read the Megillah. You do shachmanas to each other. So this one year, we decided to, because Vicky was on the petite side, and I'm, you know, a, a gentleman of noble proportions, we decided we'll go as um, Bart and Homer Simpson. And th we had it all figured out. We shopped uh, way, way in advance. We were very proud of ourselves for finding yellow body paint that was severely discounted. We did not stop to think why. Why? It was severely discounted, which became evident uh, because, as it so frequently does in Israel in the month of March-ish, uh, in the month of Adar, it started pouring. And so this really, really cheap, you know, head-to-toe yellow body paint started melting. And I'm walking around and this whole thing is like disfigured and looks like terrifying. And one of my friends looks at me and is like, oh, cool, man. You went as the Toxic Avenger. It's like... <laughs> Oh, this is just a disaster so of a holiday. You were like a, a pre-minion minion. Here's the thing. What I don't think Purim does get enough credit for is giving us the phrase, the whole Megillah. Right. That like everyone uses. Fair enough. That's true. Even Gentiles. Gentiles use even it. The Gentiles whole the whole Megillah. I wonder where that came into the language of who's the Jew who said, oh, you, you, you want to do the whole Megillah? <laughs> and the Gentile said, that sounds interesting. That sounds like a authentic. Yeah, someone write word. in and tell us the answer to this question. The whole Megillah um, twice. The whole Megillah. Ah, ah. I'm excited for the mail that we're going to get about this. News of the Jews. N O T J. News of the Jews. Uh huh. Well, speaking of the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of Jews, let's head to news of the Jews. This past week, a bunch of white supremacists proclaimed a day of hate. And then they had to ask, what if you threw a day of hate and nobody came? <laughs> this, 
this this story is so weird. Somebody proclaimed a national day of hate. I'm not sure who, if somebody on Gab or Yap or Dwip or Dwap or one of the right-wing websites, but we got a lot of emails about it from various federations saying there's a day of hate. What was it last Tuesday? It was last Sunday, Saturday. Last su- Saturday, right. And so there was extra security at synagogues and day schools worried sorry, about it. Sorry, but doesn't Saturday kind of postpone, if day of hate falls on a Saturday, Aren't you then obliged to celebrate Day on of Hate on Sunday? <laughs> on Sunday. On Sunday. Well, they don't know this. By the way, is there Arab Day of Hate? Like Friday night, do you like do you like hate candles and then Eat it. sing you some hate, hate Zamiris? Also, I like to think of it as the Day of Hate. Chet. Yeah. And then nobody showed up and then nothing happened. And But there was a flurry. For 24 hours, we were all a little more scared and we don't even know who called it the Day of Hate. Here's the thing. I think this was terrifying, right? Because it's like a Day of Hate. That's a, that's a horrible phrase. Like right. for some reason, it's like, a day of, it's not, it's not like a day of violence. It's like a hate, yeah. right? It's like, it's something so, I think, deep-seated and ugly that when we saw it, I had friends texting me being like, who weren't Jewish? Just being like, I'm, I'm so upset by okay this. Are you okay today? No, right. no, no. Just yeah. being like, I'm so disturbed by this idea of a day of hate. And then, of course, you know, yes, we get all these emails. And, and unfortunately, the Jewish community is quite prepared for this, right? Mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. There's going to be heightened security at Jewish institutions. There's going to be heightened security at synagogues, all this stuff. And then, you know, you're like, luckily nothing happened, right? You don't want any bad things to happen. But then you're like, is this, a, we're just going to be jerked around, basically being like, oh, next, oh, 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 two Saturdays from now, another day of hate. Three of Saturdays irony. from now, it's it's the day of general annoyance. The Saturday right. after that, it's the day of uh, of Rahmanas. Day, day of malaise. Day you know, malaise. ironically, uh, I I think we should we should send you know eighteen dollar checks to whoever organized it because I think synagogue attendance yes. this Shabbos yes. was at an absolute because everyone was like f you but here's time. here's I'm there too I'm like f you guys stop doing this to us I actually want I want to go to a freaking perm spiel like I they don't realize that what they're doing is actually getting us so pissed off that like. Neo Nazis are suddenly like, first of all, like, so it literally a takes thing? a neo Nazi to get a Jew to show. Yes, is exactly. where we are in America right but now. I just, I just, I, I just have no patience for this. I think it's such, I think it's disgusting. I think it's such bullshit. I think, sorry, I don't. Do we curse on the show? I just think that so many people are sitting here like me, being like, you go, you don't get to do this, and you don't get to scare us, and you, and we're not going to be scared, but we're going to be cautious. That's that's the problem because you're like, we need to be smart, we need to be vigilant, but we can't be cowed by people threatening us. But we need to protect ourselves. So, like, what is the line of, you know, like, I would have hate, like, how horrible would it be if something actually truly bad and violent happened this weekend? Yeah. <laughs> so, one of like, my you kids have said, to be prepared. We but- were on our way to shul and one of my kids said, wait, should we be going? Isn't this the day of hate? I was like, yeah, so we're going to shul. That's what we go every Saturday. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep it. Nothing's going to happen. That's amazing. You'll be fine. It'll be fine. Liel, I know that subscriptions to Take One tripled because of the day of hate. Everyone said, I'm going to listen to a Talmud podcast because of the day of hate. But here's the thing. If only, you know, if only we just like did Jewish things what if on this a regular was, basis. This was like masterminded by like the Galactic Federation to <laughs> get to said. this. <laughs> <laughs> be like, guys, look, they're not going to go to show. Here is what I suggest. <laughs> they're playing the extended line. The, the longest game ever. Friend of the show, David Beshevkin, wrote an essay for Tablet a few years back called It's Gary Shandling's Spiel, What the Late Comedian Can Teach Us About Purim. We love this piece so much that we asked David to revisit it this year for us.
There are a lot of different figures that come to mind when we think about Purim. But every year, uh, I have a custom over the past several years that there's one figure that actually comes to mind that I celebrate his yard site, his life, and his legacy. And that is the great comedian Gary Shandling. You may know him from The Gary Shandling Show, or you may know him from The Larry Sanders Show. Uh, He was a brilliant comedian, and there is a wonderful documentary by Judd Apatow called The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. One of the reasons that I think of him is that he died on March 21st, 2016, which happens to be on Purim. That Hebrew date was the 14th of Adar, which makes his yard site actually on Purim. I think that Gary's connection to Purim is much more than just the date of his yard site. It's actually embodied by what his comedy actually was all about. You know, the Purim story is unique in that it's the one book where the name of God is completely absent. When the name of God is absent, it really makes you reflect on the other participants in the story. Usually God is the main character. And so to speak, in God's absence, you start to look at the very story differently. Normally, when we watch a story, we only pay attention to the characters depicted, the actors, the supporting actors, the background. The Purim story, however, with the absence of God, sensitizes the reader to this most obvious absence of the other roles involved in the story. The writer, the director, the cinematographer. An effective movie director is never on screen, but the entire performance is in essence a tribute to their presence. They remain obscured, however, behind the fourth wall of the production. And what's become known as breaking the fourth wall is the acknowledgement that the entire story is, in fact, a product of someone else's design. That's part of the reason why it's become common custom to wear costumes on Purim. A not-so-subtle reminder that we're always, to some extent, playing a role, and our real authenticity lies beneath. Breaking the fourth wall, recognizing the very revelation the story is by design concealing, is the recurring theme throughout Gary Shandling's work. His debut television show, It's Gary Shandling Show, was built on this very premise, where the actors throughout acknowledge that they're on a television show, openly incorporating the audience's presence into the performance. This continued in more subtle ways in his later work, and The Larry Sanders Show is an elaborate unveiling of the -the behind-the-scenes drama and personalities that constitute the carefully curated world of talk shows. Even his later efforts, notably his interviews for the DVD extras for The Larry Sanders Show, seem desperate to capture the normalness and magic of everyday scriptless conversation within the confines of the camera. To watch Gary Shandling is to watch someone wrestle with his own self-consciousness of his self-consciousness, grasping for the possibility, however futile, that we can act naturally even in the presence of a camera. The moment a believer, which Gary Shandling very much was, stops seeing God as a fellow actor, we're only left with a foreboding awareness that we've been on his stage, on God's stage, the entire time. Gary wrote in his diary something that has always moved me and I always think about, He wrote in his diaries, maybe your comedy is a natural gift to be given to others with joy to help them through this impossible life and you sharing it with no desire of getting anything. And in the Megillah we read, and who knows, Mordechai cautions Esther in probably the most pivotal scene in the entire Megillah, if you have ascended to royalty for this very moment, 
God is never revealed in the Purim story, but his presence is found in the way people look towards the presence and potential of others. After facing the absurdity of a day of Jewish annihilation transformed into a day of Jewish celebration, realizing that we all along have been a part of God's stage direction, we learn how to see godliness in others. This ultimately was the revelation within the final act of Gary's life. He wrote in his diary, give more, give what you didn't get, love more, drop the old story, become old gracefully, become a mentor gracefully. As the curtains began to close on Gary Shandling's life, he turned his critical self-conscious gaze into an outward graciousness, reading his friend's scripts, organizing basketball games, and serving as a parental figure for many comedians and writers. On Purim, we send Mishaloach Manos, celebratory food for friends and Matanos Lavionim gifts for the poor. Once the fourth wall drops between the actor and the director, it also vanishes between fellow actors. We all realize that we're a part of the play. And as we eke through this impossible life, Shanling and Purim remind us that even in the face of difficulty, the possibility of authentic joy can still be found in the rubble of our imagined narratives if we only stop critiquing the script and instead surrender to it and help others fall in love with it. Wishing everyone a Freilichen Purim. Happy Purim, friends. Called me up and asked if I would write his theme song. I'm almost halfway finished. How do you like it so far? How do you like the theme to Gary Show? This is the theme to Gary Show, the opening theme to Gary Show. This is the music that you hear as you watch the credits. We're almost to the part of where I start the whistle. Then we'll watch his Gary Shandling Show. You know Leo Leibowitz as my beloved co-host on Unorthodox, but he's also a deep reader of sacred texts. And in this piece, he shares with us his thoughts about one of the most maligned, but he feels most important parts of the Megillah of Esther. Remember Rambo First Blood Part 2? The ultimate 80s action flick? The one with Stallone running around with a very large machine gun? The movie came out in Israel when I was 10 years old. And ever since I saw it, I wanted just two things out of life. A cool red headband, just like the one Sly wears in the movie, and a big, shiny gun. Neither struck my parents as particularly reasonable. And so I waited a few months until Purim drew near and then, ever so casually, told my mother that this year I'll be dressing up as my hero, the world's most pictorially impeccable Green Beret. Finally, the big day arrived. Purim, which, because Israel has no Halloween, was our one and only chance at dressing up. I smeared some shoe polish under my eyes for effect. I tied the coveted band around my head, doing my best to ignore the fact that it was really just a silk sash my mother had removed from one of her dresses, a misfortune that would have never befallen the real John Rambo. But never mind that. I grabbed my toy gun 
and went to school feeling tough. Now, here's what you need to know about Purim in Nofiam Elementary School. Before you could get to all the holiday fun, you had to go through two hours in the morning of business as usual, or business almost as usual. Because in Purim, we give each other mishloach manot, or small gift bags stuffed with treats. And at Nofiam Elementary, we all placed our gift bags on the teacher's desk and then later in the day drew names at random to see who will receive whom's care package. Which meant that as the teacher carried on about math or Hebrew or geography or whatever, you would sit there trying to figure out which of the cellophane-wrapped treasures will end up being yours and prayed softly that you would receive one of the nicer baskets prepared by one of the more attentive girls rather than some chaotic platter thrown together by an inattentive boy and containing little more than a pair of hamantash and if you were really lucky, maybe a small bag of bomba. I was still looking at the goods on display when the teacher embarked on another one of the day's customs, the reading of the Megillah. I'd heard it so many times before, so I tapped my desk impatiently, just wishing that Queen Esther had conducted her business in one nightly feast for the king and Haman rather than two. Why did she take so long? Come on. But then, out of the trill of the familiar, popping out of the Megillah like the tip of an iceberg out of a dark ocean, came the following words. And the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled and protected themselves and had rest from their enemies and slew their foes 75,000. But upon the spoil, they did not lay hands on the 13th of the month of Adar, and they rested on the 14th thereof and made it a day of feasting and joy. Pretending to be John Rambo was one thing. Munching on poppy-filled pastry while nodding contently to a story about the joyous massacre of scores of civilians over not one but two days was another. I put my toy gun down. All of a sudden, my favorite holiday felt a lot less kid-friendly. Over the next few decades, I continued to be haunted by the specter of Purim. And the more I read, the less lonely I felt. That bit about the slaughter, I learned, had troubled Jews since at least Victorian times. Several of England's most prominent Yidden spent a lot of time and energy apologizing for the story. Like one Claude Goldsmith Montefiore, a darling of Balliol College, Oxford, who, when introducing his edition of the Hebrew Bible, wrote, we can hardly dignify or extenuate the operations of the Jews by saying that they were done in self-defense. It would be best, he concluded, if Purim, that odious holiday, were to lose its place in our religious calendar. Cancel Purim. But Purim, thank God, persisted. And with it, the discomfort of many enlightened Jews eager to explain away its hard kernel. Shulam Dean, for example, a really gifted writer and former Hasid, credited the holiday for accelerating his decision to leave orthodoxy. I wanted a world, he wrote, in which 75,000 dead makes one shudder, if ever so slightly, before enjoying hamantashen and whiskey. 
and Rabbi Dr. Chaim Brugansky, a scholar from Bar Ilan University in Israel, gave his own midrash, his own take on Purim, suggesting that the real reason we fast on Tanis Esther, the fast day before Purim, wasn't to remember the Hebrew queen and her heroic feat, but rather to mourn for all those innocent souls plucked by Mordechai's murderous minions. These exegesis ought to have moved me. They strummed on the very same tender string in me that shuddered at the song of slaughter. Instead, they merely drove me back to the text itself, aching to understand just why my heroes took so gleefully to carnage. Read the story without paying too much attention, and it may strike you as an open and shut case of eye for eye and tooth for tooth. The Persians tried to kill the Jews, the Jews prevailed, the Jews killed the Persians in retributions, end of story. But Jewish texts, hallelujah, always reward a deeper reading. And a deeper reading of the Megillah tells a very different story. Go back to chapter 3 and you'll see Haman as a menace in full. Slighted by Mordechai, he could easily have applied his might as the viceroy of a great empire and crushed his foe. How easy would that have been just to kill one dude? But Haman isn't a hothead. He waits, waits until his wrath is distilled into potent fuel and then carefully constructs his operatic bloodshed. He draws lots, he makes plans, and it's not just Mordechai he seeks to annihilate, but all the Jews everywhere. Why? The Megillah in chapter 3, verse 6 simply states that it was contemptible to Haman to lay hands on Mordechai alone, which may be the key to unlocking Haman's terrifying theology. Exterminating the Jews isn't just a way to sate his lowly appetites. It's an affirmation of his warped worldview in which power may rest solely with one source, and all who question or oppose or complicate it in any way must die. Here again is the Megillah. And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and separate among the peoples throughout all the provinces of your kingdom, and their laws differ from those of every people, and they do not keep the king's laws. It is therefore of no use for the king to let them be. They have different laws, therefore it is of no use to let them be. The same words might have been spoken by Hitler's goons or Stalin's thugs, but they continue to resonate today with too many people who are all too sure that life is a zero-sum game whose purpose is to achieve all the power and wipe out anyone and everyone who thinks differently than you. Which, amen, Selah, is not the Jewish idea of justice. So why did the Jews kill so many Persians? Not because of who they were, but, and this is a crucial difference, because of what they did, or rather what they were about to do. Because these Persians had allowed themselves to be swept by Haman's madness, because they prepared to unleash carnage against their innocent Jewish neighbors. The story of Purim then isn't a gritty tale of revenge. It's a benevolent, if bloody expression of morality. Unlike Haman, 
Mordechai and Esther insist that guilt isn't transitive, but personal. It applies only to those who have transgressed, not to all members of a group, race, nation, or class. Unlike Haman, Mordechai and Esther are interested neither in power nor in riches, but in justice. Again and again and again, we are reminded that the Jews refused to partake in the spoils, leaving the property of their vanquished foes unclaimed. And unlike Haman, Mordechai and Esther do not take the killing lightly. Their campaign is motivated not by personal considerations or calculations, but by the desire to uphold what ought to be the foundation of every legal system anywhere, the principle that actions have consequences. To let the Persian plotters go unpunished would have meant not only dismissing an attempt against the Jews as pardonable, but it would have also dismantled the foundations of lawfulness and righteousness throughout the empire simply by showing that one may very well try one's hand at genocide and walk away unscathed. This is why the killing was necessary. To skip it would have meant giving the would-be pogromists a get-out-of-jail-free card, which is the same as giving them permission to try again when the time is right. If you're serious about morality, you must recognize that anyone who rises to slaughter an innocent person for no other reason than that person simply being who they are deserves to suffer the consequences of their bigotry. You could end your reading of the Megillah right there and still feel confident that Purim is far from the primordial celebration of unchecked retribution it is so often and so wrongly understood to be. But the Megillah, blessed, offers us one more layer of meaning, a really important one, one pertaining not to the collective national drama, but to our own personal responsibility. Hear me out. There's an ancient Jewish teaching that tells us that Mordechai and Haman didn't just bump into each other on the streets of Shushan. They met a long time ago, in a previous life, Mordechai being busy building the temple in Jerusalem and Haman trying to foil his plan and doom the world to suffering and misery. This fight between those who do and build and create and those who criticize and destroy, this fight is as ancient as our species and it still goes on. It's an eternal struggle between those whose faith leads them to see others with dignity and compassion and those whose resentments drive them to all forms of tyranny. It's the struggle between those who see it as their duty to personally strive to repair this world by adhering to the timeless tenets of justice and those who lazily expect the work of redemption to be done immediately and by others succumbing to their demands. Think of it this way, and Purim becomes a reminder that there will always be those like Haman who will assault us in our moment of weakness when we're tired or numb. We're just eager to have a drink and forget all about the turbulence of fate. When that happens, we have but one obligation, fight. 
not only against the would-be oppressors, but against oppression itself, against the idea that we are powerless to chart our own course and demand our own rights. Fight against those who deny America's godly promise. Fight against those who deny the Jews their safety and security. Fight against those who see the world as an everlasting war between two immovable camps with no gray area in between. Fight against the cynics and the cowards. Fight against those who wish to replace a cohesive community with warring tribes. Fight against those who urge you to stay silent because someone else is better than you are. All these evildoers are the same. A million little Hamans. And we must reject all of them. In the very opening of his majestic interpretation of the Megillah, the famous rabbi, the Vilna Gaon, sets the tone for what's to follow by insisting that the story we're about to hear hints at the trials of mankind, its war against the evil inclination, and the eventual downfall of the devil. Forget John Milton, or for that matter, forget John Rambo, for a tale of wrestling with evildoers and evil itself, for a confirmation of will and wonder, for a call to personal responsibility and communal solidarity, look no further than Purim, the greatest Jewish story ever told. are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. So friends, this is sorta our special Purim episode. And if there's one takeaway from the Purim story is that we only survive when we all stand together and care for every single member in our community. February is Jewish Disabilities Awareness and Inclusion Month. And you're listening to this show, if you're hearing it today, the show drops on what should have been February 30th. And we at Unorthodox wanted to do something to highlight this amazing work that's being done in Jewish spaces for and with those who are neurodiverse. So here is our West Coast correspondent, Courtney Hazlett, in sunny Malibu at Shemesh Farms. Have a listen. Like many, I'm guilty of scrolling Instagram to pass the time. My feed is a mix of friends, food accounts, and California kind of things, like surfing and artisanal hummus. Looking at it at the end of a long day of remote work reminds me there's a world out there. I was doing one such scroll when the account for Shemesh Farms up the road from me in Malibu popped up. I don't remember the exact image, but I do remember when I saw it. 
at the start of Jewish Disabilities Inclusion and Awareness Month. I didn't know much about Shemesh beyond the photos, but I did know it was a place where people with special needs, people who are neurodiverse, could take part in what looked like a beautiful farming co-op. So I had to go. And on a classically perfect Southern California day, I drove up Highway 1 with the windows open, winding past the surf break off Topanga and around the cliffs near the Malibu Pier to where Shemesh Farms is located to get a taste of what a working day at the farm looks like for these young adults who have aged out of most, if not all, programming. Part of what makes Shemesh so special is these folks have the chance to engage in meaningful work at their level and at their own pace, creating spice blends from seedling to packaging. We got way more than a taste though. The farm fellows and the director there, Nikki Pittman, allowed us to truly immerse ourselves, to see genuine emotional connection between the people there and the earth. True tikkun olam. Shemesh means sun in Hebrew. And no spoilers for the piece you're about to hear, but the sun shines everywhere. So I hope for this one, you save the listen for when you aren't driving. When you can sit back, plant yourself in a spot that feels meaningful to you, close your eyes, and truly take in the sounds from a day at the farm and experience their light. Have a listen. Hi, Leslie. How are you? It's good to see you. Hey, Allie. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Kim Marie. Hi, Allie. <laughs> One of the things about our opening meeting and what Allie's so good about is making sure to greet every single person, um, if not by name, making eye contact and including everybody. And so the sun shines on all of us. He's a really great demonstration of that. We are stewards of the earth and we foster a sense of responsibility for an appreciation of the earth. We find wonder by connecting with nature, working with nature, and appreciating the natural world. We respectfully recognize the Shumash, Tanya, Kish, and top Vietnam people who have stored this land throughout the generations, the land that we call home, and on which we work, create, and share what has been so justly passed down to us. And we affirm that while we cannot change history, we can work for justice, and that justice begins with recognition and acknowledgement. Oh, thank you. If you feel like it, if you can plant your feet on the earth on the floor. Thank you, Willow. And just sit up tall and straight. Maybe taking a nice deep inhale through your nose. Exhale fully through your mouth. Just take a moment to just be present here in this room with all the energy between each and every one of us. That land acknowledgement, right? Our Shomre Adama, the, the promise that we are keepers of the land. Not only are we interconnected as people, but we're, we're completely interconnected with the earth. And that's what we do here at Shemesh. We have a lot to do. I put everything on the board, Becca. We are going to harvest parsley in the tower, 
and mint in the garden. There's sorrel that's ready to be clipped. And then we'll be putting in some green onions and chives. We have acorns to sort. We could definitely have a couple of coaches and a couple of fellows doing that. And we need the marjoram and thyme sorted as soon as possible because we are going to be using it in our za'atar blend that we are currently curating. Okay, so let's meet back here at 12.15 today, okay? So have a, a wonderful morning and we'll see you soon. My name is Nikki Pittman. I'm the director of Shemesh Farms. Shemesh started with this idea there were moms who had kids that were neurodiverse and physically diverse. At 22, programs run out for young people. We have people up to 40 years old. And so what can we do to give them some meaningful work, meaningful programming to do? You know, everybody works at their own pace in their own way. Some people are verbal, some are nonverbal. Some have fine motor skills, some do not. You know, everybody's just sort of here getting to be who they are, how they are, and getting to do meaningful purposeful work in community, which is our social enterprise. And so we're keepers of the earth, right? And tikkun olam, we're here to repair the world. So we do every day. And it's, it's our job here is because we're an herb farm and then we make herb blends, that we're really conscious of how we work the earth and the methods we use. And then that we're actually feeding ourselves. We're feeding ourselves through the sun. Shemesh means sun, as I explained earlier. And, and that's why our tagline is now, because the sun shines on all of us. And every day we're outside working with nature. I mean, how great is that? A lot of our fellows don't have a lot of choice, right? They're told, you have to go here. You have to go there. This is what we're doing today. And here, that's why we've got all these different options. And what would you like to do? Why not get to go where you feel happy? Like, who doesn't want to go to a job that you love? So we're here in this, this kitchen. It's the kitchen portion of the farm, and we've got big industrial dryers and refrigerators. Back here, let's, let's go back. Some of the herbs have already been sorted. We've got a big drying rack here with sorrel drying and big mason jars filled with rosemary and Himalayan pink salt. I like to crush and curate. I like to crush and curate. I come every week. Nice. Tell me why you like it at Shemesh Because it makes me happy to be helpful. I like to have a focus for my day, and I like to work with the herbs, and I feel proud when I accomplish my work. And I like to share my work with the community of friends at the farm. Can you tell me your name? Martha. Martha, how long have you and Willow been coming here? We've been coming here for approximately a year and a half. Oh, wow. And what do you, what do you see when you come here? What does it feel like for you? Oh, it feels just amazing. You know, coming here is just so calming, relaxing and um, it feels great to be able to help and work with everybody and help each other. It's a great feeling, you know, seeing how we start by planting and then the whole process of harvesting, drying, crushing, till we get to the part where you have to curate and, you know, like we have the plants. So they do it from beginning to end. You know? That's wonderful. It's, it's, it's That's wonderful. wonderful feeling. Thank you. Tomar, do you mind talking with the microphone near you? Yeah. You don't mind? It's okay? Yeah. Okay. Tomar, can you tell me what you like doing at the farm? Working. What kind of working? 
Parsley. Yeah. You like parsley? Yeah. So I'm Adrian. At first, I will admit, I was very like spectacle of it all, and I was like, okay, I don't know why we're doing this. But the more I got to learn about everyone, and I learned to love just the community that is here. Everyone like works together. We don't act like we're like separate people, like in other like other like social interactions on the community. Tomer gets like all the work that he wants to get done here, instead of you know just feeling excluded from whatever's going on, like a lot of people tend to do, you know, in other places. I just like the inclusion. Tomer, you like doing work? Yeah. How does work make you feel? Good. Good. That's the uh, grinder, I think, we hear. My name's Leslie, and I think I've been volunteering for six or seven years. For me, it's when I showed up. There was a community. I met people, very special people with special abilities, and I was lost. I found that that two, two and a half hour period of time, we were literally in the moment, and nothing, nothing else mattered. And it was the purest way of just being. What we're doing is we're working on a blend of Zatar, and it's a blend that they, I think it took four different testing rounds for them to figure out the perfect blend, and it's amazing, and they have a huge order um, for a special event, so, and I think it's going to be one of the newest blends added to the Shemesh um, website, because it's pretty amazing. Once the blend is put together, you should come back and taste it. Oh, Just take wait. a little bit. It's, it's, if you like Zatar, it's Zatar on steroids. I mean, it's just, there's something really special about this one. Alex, okay, great. Just so you know, we're gonna be measuring out the mint next, and we need a half a cup of mint, which is right here, to add to the blender here. Okay, if you wanna help with that. Okay, we're gonna have you do that, okay, over here. Harvest time. Harvest time. Can you tell me what we're harvesting? Mint. Harvesting mint. Nice. Giving the other scissors, snipping it off. Yes, sounds beautiful. Thank you. Does it just grow back from what you've cut there and just yeah. keeps on going? Yes, huh? it keeps growing back. Cut this mint. Cut that. Yeah. This one too. Now one too. Yeah. Put it in the basket. Alright, we're having a little aphid situation that we have to clean out. Oh dear. Yeah. Aphids I mean, are tiny little bugs that like to live on plants. And nobody wants that in their tea, so. <laughs> We aim for for only the best here at Shemesh Farms. So my name is Becca Bodenstein. I'm the farm manager at Shemesh Farms and the chief sustainability officer for the Shalom Institute here in beautiful Malibu, California. I mean, the farm fellows are the best part of the job. You know, we have about 60 farm fellows. It's not a program. This, this is authentic work we're doing. We're making an authentic product that is sold out into the world. Yeah, Tiana. Oh, the nasturtium? Yeah. Yeah, I think cut around the nasturtium. You can't cut the yellow part, it's getting old. 
Yeah, so like this yellow bit right here from the fennel, we'll just snap it right off and we can compost it because it's not going to be... It does smell really good, actually. But you know what? For the sake of our color purposes, you know, how things look and how they taste and how they smell, the whole package is so important. So we'll compost this, but it looks like you've got beautiful fronds. What I'm looking at here, our farm fellow Tiana has just harvested a bunch of fronds of fennel, which we use for our signature tea, tea kuno lam. Um, and fennel is a uh, is one of our primary ingredients and it just it gives us such a beautiful tender flavor and when we harvest the fennel pretty young like this the flavor is pretty subtle so it's got like a little bit of a licorice -y flavor but this young fennel is just so delicious for teas so that's part of the pro the process of the hydroponic tower, right? So the roots grow down. You see, it's, there's very little soil. The roots grow down, 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 and that helps. That's what supports the plant's growth. Because there's all these nutrients in the water, and it feeds these roots, which then feeds the plant. There's many beauties of the hydroponic towers. Their water efficiency, um, their ability to grow things that I have trouble with in the garden. For instance, like delicious, delicate things like dill and parsley get eaten very quickly by the animals. But they don't get eaten by the animals when I grow them in the towers. But most importantly, the beauty is if you're in a walker or you're in a wheelchair, you can roll or walk right on up to the garden tower, take a seat in a chair, and still get to taste, to touch, to smell, to harvest, and to be part of the whole gardening process. So inclusivity with um, the actual practice of the gardening is really important to us. Take all the water that's off it. So this is marjoram, which is a beautiful herb that Teresa grew. We are gonna wash it, dry it, and then we're gonna crush it. And it is one of the primary ingredients in our za'atar blend. It's a traditional herb in za'atar, found in all these different kinds of za'atar blends all over the Middle East. Marjoram is a main ingredient. So thank you, Teresa, for your growing. That is the big, big bag of bulk za'atar <laughs> before it goes into Za'atar blend number four. Where the number four came from is it was our fourth try that we got this recipe curated. Perfection. So isn't it good? Perfection. Do you want to taste this? I would love to, yeah. Everything we grow here except for the toasted sesame seeds, the sumac, and the kosher salt. I think we all know that work gives us purpose. And there's nothing like finishing a job, doing a job, and feeling that satisfaction of that completion. Like Willow, I, I don't know if you noticed, but she, she claps a lot. And she'll say, I did a good job today. And yes, you did. And she'll tell me, I did a good job today. You guys, we're doing closing meeting. Work still, then meeting. Hey, you guys, come on in for closing oh, meeting. One more minute. One more minute? Yeah. This guy will work and work <laughs> and work. Yeah. And work, right? Yeah. Do you want to show him our handshake? Yeah. Okay. Let's see it. Show him our Secret handshake between Nikki and Tomer. Squeeze, loose. Okay. Nice. I need another minute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> one, one more. Finish that, and then we're going to go in. You can work long. 
Raise your hand if you had a good day today. Awesome. Who would like to share out what you did today? Willow? Today I sorted the parsley and then I cleaned up. Alex? Yes. What did you do? Um, well, I started in the kitchen making the, the Zaytar blend. And then I went to the office and cut the lavender. I uh, ground up thyme in the kitchen today. We got parsley and mommy cuts mint. Lots of sorting. I saw a lot of sorting going on today. What else got, uh, Mr. Acorn? What? <laughs> <laughs> you got some company after a while, huh? Finally. How did that go? Fun. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so we have a really nice way of closing if you'd like to plant your feet on the floor, on the earth. And just settle into your chair, maybe shake out your shoulders and your head. And if you'd like to close your eyes, you're welcome to do that or take a soft gaze or you can leave them open. But let's just get as quiet as we can. And just take a few moments to just notice with your senses, the sounds, the smells, the feel of the energy or your chair, your feet on the floor. Whatever you notice, just allow that to come in. And maybe take a few moments to just visualize the work you did today. Maybe you did one job, maybe you did several jobs. But think about what you did. Did you work with herbs? Did you work with packaging? Did you work outside or inside or both? Who did you work with? Who did you talk to? Did you notice how things smelled? Yeah. Yeah? Do you notice the sky and the sun when you walked around outside? And with your next breath, biggest breath of the day, just breathe that breath into your heart, holding all that's good about this moment with you. And as you exhale, try to visualize sending that breath out to the world, all the goodness, all the loving kindness, all the heart-centered work and care and joy. And send it especially to people who might need it most. And when you feel ready, maybe bring your eyes back into the circle and look around. Maybe offer a smile to someone or to everyone. And thank you everyone for being here today. We'll look forward to seeing you next time you're here. Have a great day. Thank you. Special thanks to Cooper Mall for helping me record this segment. Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have a farewell to our beloved detective munch, Richard Belzer, uh, who you would not know was Jewish if you read his obituary in the New York Times, but was one of the greatest comics actors, writers, uh, you know him from Homicide, Life in the Street, you know him from SVU. SVU, um, SVU. And, and, and I also know him from 
the block because he lived four doors down from me. Uh, and running really? into him on, on Broadway and 94th was one of the highlights. That's amazing. Of, of my day. And he will be sorely missed. My favorite thing I read recently was that he used to say that his detective munch on SVU was inspired by like Lenny. He called him Lenny Bruce with a badge. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is exactly what I felt watching that. What an amazing person. Stephanie Butnick. I have on a happier note. My mom, Elise B., has a birthday on Monday, and I just think she's the best. And I wish I was celebrating with her in person, but we had a lot of fun together last week on vacation. So We, I, we second that. Elise, you are indeed the best. the best, and we all love you very much. And we're all coming over for Shabbos. <laughs> totally. Well, that was upbeat, and now I'm going to make it sad again. Uh, I want to bid a farewell to, and I hope I'm getting the whole name right, Ilan Ganellis of West Hartford, Connecticut. He was killed in a terror attack in Israel a couple days ago. Um, he was an alumnus of one of the schools that one of my daughters attends. So this one felt a little bit closer than than some of the others. Uh, reading about him, he was a lone soldier in the IDF. Um, he attended Columbia, then moved back to Israel. He had worked on a kibbutz. He was living there, just living his life, and now can't anymore. So uh, we send lots of love to uh, to his family and promise to remember him. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, and by Stephanie Butnick, and by Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. The team includes Courtney Hayes, Latanya Singer, Jerome Ruskay, and Sam Hacker. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook. Get our brand new swag at tabletstudios.com. The episode art is by Esther Wardiger. Theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme and USA theme, when you hear that on the show, by Steve Barton. Send us snail mail at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Call us at 914-570-4869 and try to keep your message under about 70 seconds. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Michael Kahana at Congregation Beth Israel in Portland, Oregon. And we come to you from the sweetly tricked out, plushy rugged, air on The lava lamp is on. Lava lamped. Tablet Studios. Where producer Josh Cross is wearing a Tacosaurus t-shirt that I feel like needs recognition. Basically, we are in Josh's <laughs> childhood attic bedroom with many of the same accoutrements, I believe. It's Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. I love that your version of mouth noise is corduroy. Corduroy, is corduroy noise. white. Stop <laughs> rubbing your pants.